Welcome to this edition of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEWLP Brattleboro. I am your host, Olga Peters, and you are listening to 107.7 FM. I want to introduce my guests today. Of course, we have regular contributor, Emily Kornheiser. And today we have Chris Campany, who is coming here to talk about public space. And he is the executive director of the Wyndham Regional Commission. Hi, Chris. Hi, Emily. Hi. Hi, Olga. <laughs> Oh, and I am supposed to say that the views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the host and guests and not the radio station. Still true. Still true. Mm-hmm. And just because I say something doesn't mean it's Chris's opinion either. Okay. We're each speaking for ourselves here today. That's good to know because, you know, obviously we might mind meld or something and, and lose all identity. Mm-hmm. And our listeners might also like to know that we are testing out our video technology. Taking That's the right. second step and possibly streaming soon. I know. We might do something really techy like Facebook Live. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That would be pretty cool, wouldn't it, Chris? That'd be very cool. Aren't you glad we're not doing it today? I am. <laughs> <laughs> so, Emily, please, as you have done in past weeks, so lovely, if you would frame what we're talking about today, because we're doing a series on legislating morality. We are indeed. So we are stepping back over really a six-month period to say, what are the essential ideas, frames, concepts that shape the discourse around the Vermont legislature, around politics in Vermont, and what do we need to understand more deeply to understand how and why we're making the laws that we are the way that we do? And so we are in a month-long discovery session about legislating morality and what that means, how we do it, and what it might look like not to do it. And so we had a great conversation about drugs, drug use, um, possibly decriminalizing drugs. We We had had a really great conversation about decriminalizing sex work as well. Yes, we did. Super fun. And then last week, we talked about speech, free speech, hate speech, the Constitution, that was really fun with Meg Mott. That was fun. And we are wrapping, almost wrapping up this session, talking about public space and what, how we legislate morality in public space and a little bit maybe even, if we can, of the history of how we legislate morality in public space. Well, I want to start right there, actually, Emily, is of all the things, I think when we, we talked about this series and you say legislating morality, uh, like sex work, drugs, free speech, people are like, oh, yeah, that's a no brainer. That does kind of fall under the, I don't know what obscenity is, but I know it when I see it kind of thing. But what about public space? Why does that fall under, for you, or even for Chris, why does that fall under that headline of legislating morality? So the answer that I like to give to people first about this is about bathrooms Mm -hmm. and bathroom laws. And we have a long history in this country of bathroom laws. So we've certainly had, you know, We know about racial bathroom laws. More recently, we've talked about transgender bathroom laws. And what I've seen happening in our community, and I think happening around the state, is that we're actually legislating class. And Mm -hmm. not legislating, but we are regulating bathrooms according to people's perceived class status. Interesting. And as more and more of our public spaces become partially privatized because of how they're funded it becomes easier and easier for certain people to be excluded from what are semi-public, semi-private spaces. So that's one way I think we legislate morality in, pri- in public spaces. Another one is just 
who has a right to be where and how and how they're behaving, whether that's public displays of affection. Again, we have a long history of that, specifically with regards to race, but we also see it with regards to same-sex relationships and a wide variety of other things. And in Brattleboro now, we know this is a very hot topic around um, asking for money, around types of conversations people are willing to have, and mm -hmm. what behaviors are permissed, permissible in public spaces. So Chris, let's start with, with you, because you've worked for several years in Wyndham County, but you have worked in a number of communities before coming to this area of, of many different sizes. What role does something like a public park or public bathrooms or other public gathering spaces, why are they even important to communities? I mean, fundamentally, they're the places that we gather. They're the places where we interact with one another. Um, they, the spaces often serve all kinds of different roles um, just in how we are in our communities. And different people react to... Um, you know, live in, live, in, live in our communities and live in our community spaces in different ways, right? Uh, depending on your own personal preferences, your desire to interact with other people or not. Um, and then some people require public space because that may be one of the main places in which they dwell. Mm -hmm. um, and in other cases, it may be more for recreation, enjoyment, that kind of thing. Um, so they're critical spaces. Uh, I've also bring to this a landscape architecture background, and to me, the design of public spaces is really critical as far as uh, how they make you feel, how you respond to the place, how they actually cause you to interact with other people or not interact with other people. Um, and you know, in landscape architecture, you know, we're taught about how to actually manipulate space to where you achieve those different kinds of experiences. Um, you know, what is the underlying design co design concept? Um, everything from the use of form and colors and textures and plants and everything else. Um, and to me, that's a really critical aspect of public space. And, of course, we have some public spaces that are, that are intentionally designed and we have others that are not at all. Mm -hmm. um, so you may have, like, Pliny Park, or, and I apologize if I mispronounced the name. Uh, Wait, is that not how you... How I've th only been here nine years, and, I, and so if I always pronounce it. Yeah, because sometimes you I'm hear Pliny Park. I'm going to trust Olga on this one. See, now that you said it, I don't know. Pliny, Pliny Park. Okay. Pliny. Yeah. That's how I say it. Okay. Someone will call. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to interrupt. All of a sudden, I realized no, no, I might have no. had it wrong all this time. But you see, so there's, there was a there was a, a design space design intended to act as a park, but then you also have public spaces which could be an alley or a back corner of a parking lot. That's a also harmony a public parking space. lot. And, um, and or even speaking of Pliny Park, you designed a specific public park in the middle of the biggest intersection in town. So what does that even mean for who would be interested or willing to access that space? And it's really, uh, gosh, I'm trying to remember who did. There was, there was a great documentary called uh, the, the Life of Public Space. Gosh, I'm going to have to get back to you with the exact name. But basically, it was done back in the 60s. It actually, they... They, it was a professor uh, who they recorded the movement of people through public spaces mm -hmm. and how they related to corners and that kind of thing. And a lot of people actually like those kinds of spaces. If you think about that space, it's actually kind of interesting because it has particularly active areas kind of on the edges. But then you can retreat further back into the space and it's a more private experience. Oh, yeah, and, where the benches are, yeah. And so it actually, so even that relatively small space 
actually has a number of different um, types of activity areas within it because uh, some are really exposed to the street, some aren't. And so you can actually see people relaxing and kind of just with themselves or with other people kind of in the back corner, whereas you may see other people, like you'll see demonstrations and uh, not necessarily just protests, but I mm-hmm. mean like the art demonstrations or music or dance or something more in kind of the public center of that space withdrawn from the street or on the very edge when you see people wanting to get attention um, at the intersections of the streets, you, they gather on the corner. And so there's a small space that's, that actually serves all kinds of different purposes, and it relates to how, uh, you know, where you are relative to uh, um, the surrounding context of buildings and streets and the, uh, the walls that are there and other things. That's really interesting because I've noticed on the common when I'm there with a group of people, because it's so uniform in a lot of ways, it's really hard to fill the space. Um, or to feel like you're using it effectively or to feel connected to the group that you're there with. So I've seen people use lawn signs in order to sort of shrink the space before Mm. um, or to make people feel like they're in a sort of more held space there. But because there isn't those sort of natural divisions and hot spots and cooler spots, it's a much harder space to use unless you're really filling it. Right, it's a it's a it's a large space, and it does have the gazebo. I'm trying to I'm trying to visualize now the uh, actual layout of it. But the trees are planted in a very uniform right. way, so that you don't create those coves that you might have. But then, you, but then the area as you approach the, um, you know, as you approach the slope down towards Route 30, that's kind of much more open mm-hmm. and exposed, mm-hmm. and you see people kind of out in the sun there. And then you see other people in other parts of it where it's more sheltered by the trees and you've got the area of the gazebo yeah, there behind the gazebo so even there it's you know you could almost look at it as a large room with a number of different kind of smaller rooms within mm-hmm. it um and yes yeah, i mean that's one of the things about you know in some respects not over designing spaces because uh you do allow people to kind of create their own uh their own spaces within there but depending on what the need is at the time so you so you're talking about like kind of a natural human response to okay this space is too ungainly so we need to better define the edges kind of define the walls of the room where we want people to be and where we want mm-hmm. them to interact with each other one thing i've noticed in our community as we've become more diverse um people's sense of security becomes a little more heightened. And I mean diverse um, with the broadest sense of the word. Mm -hmm. But as we don't know each other as well, essentially, Mm -hmm. um, or don't assume that we know each other as well, people's ability to feel safe um, is slightly more difficult. It takes a little more mental effort to feel safe in a space. And the width of our sidewalks um, and the width of, say, public staircases are fairly narrow here compared to other cities I've lived in. And it means that you almost have to touch people when you go past them, which creates a really interesting phenomenon um, for me as, you know, sometimes a single woman walking in the dark um, or when you have tourists who lollygag as they walk, <laughs> um, <laughs> window shop, whatever they do. Um, but it creates it requires intimacy that narrowness requires intimacy and people don't always want intimacy in their public spaces yeah and i think the larger context i think has an important role in that i'm just thinking of like you know if you're in a larger city you're constantly interacting with people you don't know Mm -hmm. there may be smaller pocket parks or you know uh 
even other, you know, what they call third places, places where people gather like taverns or mm -hmm. uh, uh, sidewalk cafes or other things where you can kind of take respite from like being out in the larger public realm where you may be interacting constantly with people you don't know. But here in Brattleboro, right, part of the assumption is maybe uh, you're going to run into somebody you do know. Mm -hmm. And then so then suddenly you throw people into the mix that you don't recognize because they're not on this. You don't see them all the time and they may be visitors. They may not be may just be. Um, but I think that's maybe part of what's a little unsettling to people is we we tend to expect like even if you don't necessarily know the person, you kind of recognize them because especially if you're one of the downtown denizens, um, you know, you may not be you may not have ever even said hello to the same person but you recognize the face mm -hmm. uh, you recognize the clothes and then suddenly you're interacting with people that you don't recognize maybe they behave differently um or other things and that may make you feel a bit unsettled especially if the physical context kind of forces you in closer proximity to other people um and so i would say part of it is uh you know public spaces and smaller uh communities you know function differently or or have kind of a different pattern of, of behavior and existence than you would say in a larger city. I live in the village of uh, Newfane and you know there it's uh, immediately obvious who lives in the village and who doesn't um, and um, and the sidewalks there are very narrow mm -hmm. so even like when my wife and I are walking down the sidewalk it's like it's, it's odd because one of us is typically walking in route 30 the other is walking on the sidewalk <laughs> Um, so if you pass somebody, somebody's going into the grass or the street. This yeah. is the sidewalks throughout the village. But, uh, you know, it's a much more, in that case, it's kind of a much more intim intimate setting if you're on the sidewalk. But then, of course, you've got village greens and other places. But then it's like right even there you've got two different spaces. There's a sidewalk where it's kind of like defined place where you're supposed to be. The minute you step off onto the grass, that feels like a place where you pause and let others pass. It's not necessarily where you where you're supposed to be, unless of course you're recreating on the grass or mm -hmm. um, picnicking or something like that. So, and if we think about like, like, the historic implications of the person who sort of steps off the sidewalk yeah. to let someone else pass, um, and even how that still plays out today, I've seen a lot of commentary since Me Too became a more public conversation around how many women's natural response is to move over for men on a sidewalk. And I think this is generally a conversation about white women and white men and what it actually feels like to not move aside and how men will just sort of charge right into a woman and not even realize that they're there in that context, which mm -hmm. I find I have not tried this yet myself. Um, I look forward to going to a city where it might be a more fun adventure to do that. <laughs> but, you know, we have the racial history of people moving aside. We have the class history of people moving aside. Um, and in our small towns, I think that was, you know, we still had pretty extreme class dynamics going on. There may be some other cultural issue. I mean, not only not only culture in terms of how men are raised, but it may also be like where men are raised. Because mm -hmm. in other parts of the country, you're southern, yes, you, yeah, and so you would be taught to step aside and make way. Mm -hmm. Now that's not saying that you're not also a misogynist who steps out of the way, um, <laughs> but but I'm just saying it. But that I think that also may vary somewhat depending on where you are in the country and also what age person you are. Absolutely. Um, there's so many dynamics. So that's why it's really hard to predict exactly how any one individual is going to going to react. And so it's, it's important, I think, that we just design all of our spaces or be mindful of all of our spaces uh, that that we 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 maintain them in a way that everybody feels as mm -hmm. as comfortable as possible mm -hmm. so what i find interesting here a little bit about what we're talking about is you know 
we have framed this conversation with how do you legislate morality and, and how do you legislate around public spaces? And yet this seems very much more like a cultural societal issue than a straight black and white um, legislative one. Oh, I would disagree. Okay. So it's legislation that people don't even think of as legislation. So the our built environment affects how our culture carries its how our culture behaves so we have these cultural mores that cause us to step off the sidewalk to feel safe to not feel safe to enjoy intimacy to reject intimacy to fear intimacy and then we actually have building codes and regulations and laws that come out of our legislation around the required width of a sidewalk when you build a new sidewalk okay good or point. shoulders right. or that's all part of the apparatus of government and we can control that, but we need to do it mindful of what messages we're sending to our communities and what we're allowing our communities. And by allow, I mean what space we're making, not what we're permitting, mm -hmm. um, how we're allowing them to behave. So Chris, when you have worked on projects for communities, what have you found works when it comes to finding out how the community uses a space, what it wants from this space, but then also how maybe the community needs to change so that it is more, um, so these public spaces are more accessible to as many people as possible. Well, to what, to Emily's point that she just made, I think that the most critical thing is involving the people who are going to be using the space and the actual design. And so that means making sure that you have, like, don't assume, you know, X sidewalks, walk width, X, uh, Proximity of walls to, to uh, street corners, uh, proximity, you know, what kind of uh, spaces you're creating with the vegetation, whether it's shrubs or trees, you know, you actually involve, make sure that you've got a broad cross segment of the population involved in that. Make sure women are involved in the design process. Make sure men are involved in the design process, children. Um, you may even, to, you know, possibly get folk who live there, folk who don't, and mm -hmm. try to get their sense of the of feel. and. And the way you can do that is actually like show different images of different spaces, show different contexts, and have people kind of gauge. Uh, you know, there are different ways to measure it, but you know, how do you feel in that kind of situation? Um, and you don't necessarily have to identify the individual, but you know, to the extent that you could, that folk are willing participants and are willing to identify their uh, their gender identity, their uh, um, their race or ethnicity, uh, potentially even religious beliefs, uh, just to see how different people respond to different types of spaces. Mm -hmm. And of course, there's research out there that that'll, that shows some of that uh, response too. So that you know, if you don't necessarily have the ability to go that deep in your own community project, there is research out there that actually shows how different people uh, respond to different types of settings. Mm -hmm. um, but one of the um, but in any community project, it's critical to get the community involved. And one of the challenges I think we face, like we're oftentimes at the Winter Regional Commission involved in bicycle and pedestrian studies. And so often what begins that conversation is, well, how does this place feel to people who are visiting from some other place? Mm -hmm. And what I always try to get communities to do is plan it for yourself. Because if you do, it's going to be authentic. It's going to be a place, your design, it's going to be a place that you want to be. Um, and it'll be then a, then be a place that other people want to engage with as well. 
it's kind of I, the example I often use is like if you've ever moved, if you've ever sold a house, um, oftentimes before you sell the house, you do all this work on it to get it kind of, you know, Ship looking shape. nice. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And you then know, the person who buys your house, like, does it all over again when they well no there. no but it's like you do the work on it you're like wow this is really nice i wish i'd done this like five years ago <laughs> when i was actually living here as mm-hmm. opposed to doing this for somebody else to come in and yeah change it change it all up but it's funny my mom's living in the house that i grew up in still with for no reason at all like it's ridiculous she still lives there she doesn't really friends there anymore property taxes are paying for schools that she's you know not using um which i think everyone should do but my mother doesn't want to do and um just want to put in that little policy plug but what's been interesting is she did exactly that she met with a realtor the realtor said you have to fix these things before i'm gonna put your house on the market she did those things and now she has no interest in leaving the house (laughs) (laughs) oh that's brilliant a stove after 40 years of cooking with this terrible stove but think about you know if if you're in an economically just if you're in an economically stressed area i mean think about how often the conversations are about somebody else and what can we do to attract somebody else as opposed to what do we want to do to make it a great place for us on the bike pedestrian thing that's a really fascinating thing to me in brattleboro because we have two very different biking communities right we have the sort of environmental sport health biking community Mm -hmm. which are often have really nice bikes electric assists you know mirrors the whole gear certainly some members of my family have that gear i wish i wanted to and then um And then you have a lot of folks that you see biking because they can't afford cars, because they don't have their licenses for whatever reason. Um, And those two communities have very different biking needs, I think. And so how do we make sure that those conversations are bringing both both groups into account? And how do you create a public space or create a public process that feels accessible for those two different populations mm-hmm. that are both using the same technologies. And uh, the way is to involve those people in this in that conversation because mm-hmm. one of the issues, one of the things that I bring up is if you look back through history, like even right here in Brattleboro, you used to have trolleys that would run up and down Main Street. Uh, used to have other means, not only like walking or biking or riding your horse or whatever, but you also had other means, and it's because. I think we did a better job in the past. It may just because there were so many war veterans and uh, just people who had, because of the nature of the times and healthcare and other things, had, were differently able to even walk on the street. Mm-hmm. I think I think we used to do a better job understanding that, um, and that, you know, not not to say that you know there were. I mean, obviously, we had like this Americans with Disabilities Act to fix things that we didn't do in the past. But I think maybe we used to do a better job of recognizing that. Not everybody is as able to, like, not all pedestrians are as able as other pedestrians. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. You have younger children, you have older people, you have people who have j- just, for whatever reason, moved differently. And the same, I know we we definitely see that conversation, not only in the biking community, but also, like, in the hiking community. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're the people who are kind of the, 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 they're the folk who are just out there for the stroll, or maybe they are using the trail even to get from point A to point B, and then they're the, the people who are really kind of making a sport or some kind of, you know, uh, specific physical activity out of it. Um, and that's, again, the main, to me, an important part of the public policy approach is to make sure that, that everybody's included in the conversation. Mm-hmm. I For a short period of time, I lived on um, Oregon Street, and there's a really short trail that connects Oregon Street down to so it's Bird Street. Yeah. Um, and it was a really lovely trail. And it was really lovely to have that little pocket of woods within the downtown because 
you know, parenting and working and volunteering and all the things I did, there was no time to go off and recreate. And when recreation is sort of separated from the downtown so that our only wild spaces are pushed very far outside of town, I think it makes it less and less accessible to Mm -hmm. people for transportation reasons, for time reasons, for whatever that is. I want to switch this conversation slightly. And we'll do that right after we hear from some of our underwriters. Perfect. Perfect. 